Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kira Mulvaney and Eric, ding dong, the witch is dead. The streak is over. Yes, we talked last week about the curse of the Showtime Boxing Podcast guest over the last several months. Uh, being our guest before being in a big fight has meant losing that fight. Jerico O'Quinn, Jamal James, Gary Russell Jr., Caleb Plant, Terrell Cachet all experienced it but now along comes sebastian Fundora. great interview great guest and incredibly still unbeaten <laughs> perhaps it's time for a new streak eric a streak of victory come on the uh showtime boxing podcast and have a win be guaranteed even a win that catapults you into the upper echelons of your division how about that? That would be nice. Uh, the streak is currently at one. Doesn't qualify yep. as a streak, but uh, it's certainly better than the other streak. I'm glad the curse is over and that that streak is broken. But let's be careful not to give Fundora himself too much credit for ending mm. the curse. I'm actually going to claim most of the credit myself here because I bet on Lubin. Uh, two pizzas, in fact. I got greedy. Uh, I, I, I bet on him figuring I ought to at least make some money off of our curse and uh, I think my wager was what reversed the curse. I mean, the <laughs> curse was real. It was powerful, but it was not as powerful as the curse of my finances. When my money mm. is on the line, that go. can overrule all other curses. So you're welcome, Sebastian. And, uh, you know, deepest apologies, Erickson. <laughs> yes. And Eric's lactose intolerance thanks you, Sebastian, for, <laughs> for the absence of pizza yes. right now. Sure. It did make me wonder, actually, if the other issue was not only did we have these guys on as guests, but at least one of us generally picked them to win, whereas mm-hmm. we both picked against Fandora. But then I realized, well, we both picked against Caleb Plant, too. So that's not it. Right. So, no. yeah. So the problem is actually just being on the pod until now. Until now. Now everyone should be clamoring to get on the pod. Exactly. Finally. <laughs> Finally, they have a reason to want to come on our podcast, Karen. Yes, precisely. There you go. Okay, moving on. Um, the Showtime boxing schedule is really picking up steam, and it's providing us with an overstuffed podcast this week, rather like that overstuffed crust pizza you didn't get to eat. <laughs> um, and we'll be looking ahead to what's possibly the biggest fight card of the year to this point, uh, Saturday's pay-per-view event from Jerry World, headlined by the welterweight title showdown between Errol Spence Jr. and Dennis Ugas. We will pre- Preview that fight, as well as the three pay-per-view undercard fights and the two pre-show bouts on Showtime. Uh, at the end of the podcast, I will count down my top five fights that happened a few years too late. We'll have the usual news coverage and tweet of the week. But we start with our streak-ending and beginning fight card this past Saturday. Uh, we have to lead with that wild battle in Las Vegas uh, that we were mentioning, the great curse snapper <laughs> itself. And hey, if you're going to lose a bet, as I did, uh, this is the way to lose it with a thriller that gives you your money's worth entertainment wise atop a Showtime Championship boxing card at Virgin Hotels in Las Vegas. 
Sebastian Fundora dropped Erickson Lubin with an uppercut in round two. Lubin dropped Fundora in dramatic fashion in round seven, just as Lubin's face was starting to swell grotesquely. But Fundora got up and got himself together, and after a dominant ninth round that left Lubin nearly unrecognizable, <laughs> trainer Kevin Cunningham stopped the fight handing the six-foot-five-and-a-half towering Inferno the TKO win, with Lubin actually narrowly ahead on the cards. Uh, Fundora improves to 19-0 with 13 KOs after what was undoubtedly the best victory of his career, while Lubin suffers a heartbreaking second loss and falls to 24-2 and with 17 knockouts. I, uh, I have two nominees for Tweet of the Week this week, uh, mm -hmm. both from active fighters, commenting on the Showtime card. Maybe after I've read them both, you can make the call, Kieran, on which is the tweet of the week. Okay. Uh, the first nominee comes from Bud Crawford, who tweeted, Fundora, a cheat code. He the type of character you make on fight night and you boost the sliders up and his height and a smaller weight class. Uh, Kieran, is Fundora a cheat code in this weight division? Uh, we both picked Lubin to win, as you noted. Uh, did we underestimate Fundora? Give me your assessment of his performance and this thrilling fight. I think I certainly underestimated Fundora, at least in the context of this level of competition. And I, and I underestimated him really on the basis of his previous win against Sergio Garcia, which we mm -hmm. talked about last week. Um, I, I thought that that bout showed the first sort of signs of weakness of a little bit of a lack of versatility and variety. As we again, we talked about last week, it was the first time that we'd seen Fandora, that he looked ordinary, and, and particularly the first time that we'd seen him where he just didn't look fun. Um, and when I first sat down to handicap Saturday's fight, you know, for our picks contest last week, my initial inclination going in was to lean toward Fandora, but that contest really tipped me hmm. um, back toward Lubin. Um, and there were still, if I were to be hypercritical, let me get the hypercritical elements out of the way before we sure. begin the, the deserved praise. Mm -hmm. um, I just inherently feel that boxing should be a bit more than marching forward and throwing a ton of punches. Um, I do like to see more nuance, more creativity, more footwork angles and defense. And there wasn't a lot of that from either man. Uh, Kevin Cunningham was just pleading with Lubin to show just an element of, of, of angles in there. Um, I would have liked to have seen a slightly less predictable offense from Fandora. I still would going forward. And I do think a guy of that size, as an inside fighter or not, should have a killer jab, which he doesn't. Right. Um, but, my God, if he could add that to his repertoire, he'd be something. And Because that's the nitpicking that one feels obligated to put in there. Uh, the rest is really all, all praise for Fandora. I mean... Just look at Lubin's face. You mentioned it after nine rounds. I mean, did the state of Lubin's face suggest that the other guy in there is a guy who really needs to improve his offense? Um, look, Fandora had a plan and he stuck to it. And what I did really like was that he ramped up that offense. You know, even if it did seem, as, as I just kind of said, it looked like it was just marching forward and throwing punches. There was more to it than that. The first five to six rounds of Fandora were good. Rounds seven, eight, and nine were exceptional, even with that knockdown in, in, in round seven. You know, he clearly, he felt that he was softening Lubin up, and he did. He he didn't, if he was very one-paced against Garcia, I don't think that was the case against Lubin. He definitely knew when to step it up a notch and really and really go for broke. Um, but let's also talk about that that knockdown, because if you have to suffer your, your career first knockdown, that's the way to do it. He got caught, he got hurt. 
but he had the wherewithal to almost allow himself to go down. It was like halfway between getting knocked down and halfway taking a knee. You know, mm. he went down and he was fine. You could tell he was yelling at himself for letting it happen. He was cursing there as he was on his knee. And then in the next round, he went right back to work. And and let's also not forget, I mean, one of the reasons we picked against him was this is a huge step up in competition for him. Um, we've seen him up against progressively better levels of competition. This was a, a much bigger step up again. And ultimately, he aced it. It was a massive test, complete with a gut check. And like I said, he aced it. Um, he's now the number one guy in waiting for whoever wins the Charlo Castaño rematch. Uh, in response to one of the questions that you asked him when we were interviewing him last week, you know, about taking on a challenge of this nature at, at quite a young age, he basically said, well, no, everything's according to the way we planned it out. Right. And, and that's how it feels. It, it, he honestly moved from prospect to contender to champion in waiting over the course of nine rounds on Saturday night. Hmm. So uh, I really thought it was... It's, you know, what, like I said, you can find flaws and nitpicks and there are ways still for him to continue to improve. And I hope that he does continue to improve. But that said, I, I thought it was a tremendous performance. I mean, what do you think? And also not just about Fandora, but about the whole contest. Do you think we saw possibly the fight of the year, maybe even the round of the year in that seventh round that he won clearly for about two minutes and 45 seconds and so getting knocked down? And how huge do you think the win is for Fandora? And the flip side, of course, is how devastating is it for Lubin? Um, on the on the year-end awards front, um, that seventh round was really something special. I think that has a better chance of contending for round of the year than the fight does for fight of the year. Um, although, unless I'm already forgetting something great, and I might be, my brain isn't the steel trap it once was, uh, <laughs> Showtime has given us the two best fights of the year so far, this and that martinez Ancaja scrap a few weeks back. So, unless I'm forgetting something, this is in I the throw top... Conlon in there as well. Oh, yes. I see. I knew I was forgetting something. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, it's those three. I'd say those are the top three for now in some order. Um, but I kind of would think even if you happen to favor... Fundora Lubin as the best so far. Feels like something better may come along. This was an outstanding fight, but not quite an all-timer. Um, mm. But that seventh round, you know, Fundora hurts Lubin with some uppercuts. His right eye starts swelling, and this hematoma between his eyes is mm. developing. And I jotted down in my notes, Lubin's face a total mess. They need to stop it soon if he doesn't land a bomb. And as soon as I jot that down, and as soon as the broadcasters start talking about Fundora's iron chin, boom, Lubin lands those bombs and knocks Fundora down. What a round. Um, analyzing the result and what it means for both fighters, uh, I'll start with Lubin. Yeah, this, this is devastating. A huge setback. Physically taxing. I mean, it was tough to look at his face after the fight. Uh, his jaw seemed to be swelling in the ninth round also. I'm not sure how quickly he can recover from all that. And emotionally, he put so much into working his way back from the Charlo knockout. He won six straight. He took this tough fight against a difficult and undefeated opponent, but I'm sure Lubin expected to win. He did go off as the slight betting favorite. And again, we're left wondering a little about his chin. Uh, I feel for him. Um, he's going to need some time off and to ease into a rebuild. I hope he can get back to this level, but it, it won't be easy where he's coming from here. As for Fondora, this win is massive. I think it totally changes his outlook. Uh, you 
you know, did a pretty good job uh, explaining there how he went from prospect to contender to champion in waiting over the course of nine rounds. He's now he's both a curiosity and a serious contender at the yeah. same time. Uh, he should be doing Dos Equis ads because he just might be the most interesting man in boxing right now, <laughs> right? Um, he starts with the smiliest ring walk in boxing yeah. history. He finishes with a great post-fight interview where he tells Jim Gray, he really brought his hammers today, but you know what? I decided to bring my drill. That's quality material right there. And in between, he showed a strong chin, those ridiculous uppercuts, the ability to adjust. It was thrilling. His stock just goes up, up, up off this performance. I was not ready to take Fundorius seriously as an opponent for the Charlo Castaño winner before this. But you said he's pretty much the number one contender to those guys now. We have to take him seriously on that level. He's a threat to anyone at 154 pounds. And the welterweights better hope he doesn't decide to prove that he can indeed make 147 pounds as he told us he can. Yeah, like I and I mean no disrespect to, to Charlo, which would be a fantastic fight, but the notion of Castaño, who's kind of an energizer bunny mm. himself of a fighter, and Fandora, uh, I mean that's the classic, you know, make it a six by six ring and just let him right. let him go at it, right? So can can Fandora fit in a six by six <laughs> ring? If if he can, if he has room to move his arms, then uh, then yeah, that's, that's oh, I'm down that's for that. that. As long as he doesn't get knocked down, yes, exactly. Right. <laughs> um, in the co-feature, we got another well-paced fight uh, with good action, although nowhere near the drama of the main event. As Tony Harrison scored a dominant decision over Sergio Garcia, who, as we just talked about, had given Fandora a much tougher time just four months ago. Uh, at the end of 10 rounds, two judges had it a shutout, while the third had it 98-92, which I think was how I had it. As Garcia tried hard, kept coming, but, but Harrison was locked in, landing jabs and counterpunches all night as he improved to 29-3-1 and one with 21 KOs. Garcia once 33 and 0 is now 33 and 2. Uh, we both picked Harrison by unanimous decision here, but I'm not sure either of us expected it to be this one-sided. So, Eric, how impressed were you with Tony Harrison? Who would you like to see him fight next? And you already talked about Pandora's post-fight interview. I'm sure you had some thoughts on uh, his post-fight interview with Jim Gray. <laughs> yeah, uh, why don't we talk about that interview first? That that was a masterpiece. Um, <laughs> a good job by Jim Gray, just letting Tony go, not trying to keep asking questions, just kind of applaud him on the Vegas comedy routine and, and otherwise lay out. Um, that interview had it all. Uh, emotion with, with Tony talking about his dad, his granddad, and Emmanuel Stewart all watching from above. Unintentional comedy when Tony accidentally said the word fart. I don't know if you caught that. but it, I didn't. I didn't. Yeah, he meant to say something else. He said fart, quickly corrected himself. Uh, the six-year-old in me chuckled at that. Um, and then, of course, intentional comedy saying he should take Jim's job, saying... I'm going to take a vacation. I'll probably create some more kids. That was the best. Great interview. Uh, he has a great personality. He really does. And, of course, he gave a tremendous performance in the ring. Tony Harrison was dialed in. Pinpoint accuracy. So sharp. Very comfortable. This is the best he's looked in a while. Aided, perhaps, by the styles. By Garcia throwing wide punches and leaving himself open. And Garcia did that weird thing where... When he jabbed, he, he pulled his right yeah. hand back, uh, even seemed to be hitting himself with the right hand. It was a little like that bow and arrow thing Jermaine Taylor used to do, and it, it created a little extra opening for counters, especially a counter left hook. But, you know, Harrison, tremendous jab, punches snapping Garcia's head back repeatedly. He didn't get tired. I actually thought Harrison won all 10 rounds. I agreed okay. with those 100 to 90 cards. Um, I'll note that Keith Idek of Boxing Scene reported that Garcia said before the fight 
that he would retire if he lost to Harrison because it would be two losses in a row. And he, quote, doesn't need boxing. He has real estate investments in Spain. So we'll see what he decides to do. Uh, But Harrison, where he goes from here, he's a really interesting player in this division again. Um, We have Charlo Castaño, too, coming up, as we've discussed. And Tim Zhu is actually one of the mandatories for the winner. So it's possible that Harrison and Fundora are both frozen out at the very, very top for the moment. So as a fan, I would love to see Harrison mm. Fundora next. Uh, and certainly if that fight happened, winner has a mandate for a shot at whoever sits on the throne. Um, I'm not sure if taking on the six foot five and a half inch towering Inferno is exactly what Tony Harrison has in mind right now, but I'd love to see it. Um, I also wouldn't complain about Harrison against Zoo. That's a fight I could Mm -hmm. see either guy winning. Very intriguing division all of a sudden. Good job by the boss man, Steven Espinosa, spotlighting the whole division with this card. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, you know, watching it, I was, I thought that Garcia was the kind of guy we used to call like an honest pro, right? Mm -hmm. Which is like... A little bit of a backhanded compliment in that it means he's going to give a solid effort. But my goodness, there was just levels there, wasn't there? I mean, he was he had that he'd been trained in that classic European stand up kind of style. And he just didn't have the fluidity, the natural ability to to adjust and cope the way that Harrison did, did he? I mean, he just it was just all taught and all ingrained, whereas Harrison, you could tell, was just not relying on his experience, but also his skills, his just natural talent. Harrison was just, you know, they mentioned it in the commentary. There were This is a classic sign of, of levels, really. Tony Harrison looked like a fighter, and I thought Sergio Garcia, more than he had done even against Fundora, looked like a guy who'd been taught to box, if right. you understand what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, so on this card of all 154-pound bouts, uh, the main event was excellent. The co-feature was good. The opening bout, unfortunately, was a stinker. Uh, Undefeated Kevin Salgado stepped up against Bryant Perella. They were both content to box from distance all 10 rounds in what was simply one of those ugly lefty-righty style clashes. And at the end of 10, the judges landed on a split draw. 97-93 Perella, 96-94 Salgado and a 95-95 card from the nearly infallible Steve Weisfeld. Uh, I was a tick off from that. I had it 96-94 Perella. Uh, But because it was a draw, uh, Perella's second in a row, in fact, and nobody won and nobody lost, it's that much easier to just pretend this fight never happened. Never (laughs) happened, you hear me? Um, But at least it produced another Tweet of the Week nominee. Uh, This one from a young man we'll be talking about later in the show when we preview next Saturday's action, Brandon Lee who tweeted during the seventh round, are these guys playing tag? Question mark, question mark. Uh, Kieran, we don't have to spend long on this fight, but give me your thoughts on whether Brandon or Bud should get the tweet of the week, uh, whether you thought either fighter deserved the win here, and any other analysis of Perella, who is now 17-3-2 with 14 KOs, or Salgado, who narrowly retained his zero at 14-0-1 with nine KOs. First of all, I'll tell you what I thought was the bad tweet of the week. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Got your happy price, price line. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay. It came from uh, an Eric Raskin. It sounds like a totally made-up name. <laughs> okay. Who tweeted after Fundora's knockdown of Lubin, that right uppercut should be known as the Fundora from down Andorra. <laughs> Eric, would you like to speak to that tweet before we move on? I think that's a great line. I think it's very clever, very funny. It totally works. Do you? Works. Do you? <laughs> okay. It's almost 24 hours later. You've had time to think about it. How do you feel? I, I think even David Greisman was running away from that one. Yeah, the fact that I did not get a like or a comment or anything <laughs> from Greisman, he, 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 he ignored it entirely. So that's not a good sign. Yeah. I it was, was worth the effort. It was I, worth the effort. You know, it's one of those things that popped into my brain and it was just like, okay, this is either going to work or it's going to not work, but I can't let it go to waste and not try it. And uh, yeah, it probably bad. didn't work. Maybe maybe a hint of so bad it's good. That's about the best I can say it was for myself. Worth it. it was worth okay. the effort. I think it was fine. Thanks. And by that stage, it was late. And honestly, the fact that you were awake was impressive. <laughs> right. That's right. Because I, I barely was. Just, sure. just to be able to hit send on a tweet at that hour, <laughs> I should get some credit. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. All right. But of the two you suggested, he says, and as you can tell, I'm doing everything I can to avoid talking about the actual fight. But of the two <laughs> tweets he suggested, uh, I like buds. Um, okay. It, it, it isn't uncommon for boxers to, you know, slag off other boxers uh, and goodness me that that first fight was the antithesis of brandon lee's form of fighting so i can understand why he wasn't enamored but when a pound for pounder like terence crawford is so complimentary of an up-and-coming hmm. let's be honest conceivably potential <laughs> right true yeah. um i i think it's great to see boxers no boxers and and i just love seeing that kind of comment and compliment um as for the and plus it was funny um as for the salgado perella bout yeah, it was disappointing. I was mostly disappointed in Perella because I expected far more from him off the back of his draw with Harrison. Uh, I did have the same score as you. Okay. Can't get upset with with a draw um, because some of the rounds were an effort to, to figure out who did more. And because the 95-95 card, as you mentioned, came from Weisfeld, right. so it has yep. to be correct. Um, <laughs> you know, it was a night where it was really set up for all six guys to really... Uh, uh, take advantage of the platform and really put themselves in that 154-pound conversation. Harrison did that. Fandora did that. Neither of these two did, and and I think they they missed a, they missed an opportunity there. One might argue that perhaps it was all a bit above Salgado anyway, but I do think coming off the, that draw with Harrison, Perella, it was there a little bit for Perella to do more. I, I was just surprised at his lack of, of output and lack of energy relative to what he had shown last time out. So I was a bit surprised by that. A hmm. uh, quick update on our picks competition. I led 20 to 12 coming into this card, and my lead remains the same. Uh, we had different winner picks in Perella Salgado, but it didn't matter as we each get zero points for the draw uh we both got the three point maximum in the harrison garcia fight and the zero point minimum by picking lubin so the tally is now 23 to 15 you truly do have me right where you want me kieran <laughs> it's not what you usually describe as uh, having me where you want me but uh, i i don't like this position I find hey we have in. a five fight card coming up anything can happen <laughs> six fight card 
Oh, you're quite correct. Yeah, so, right. Yes. It could either be really close uh, a week from now, or uh, I could be behind by a truly insurmountable uh, uh, margin. We'll see. Well, it helps if I'm only picking five fights, apparently. So there you go. (laughs) You've got a a free hit of one of them. All right. Hey, that works for me. You pick one to sit (laughs) out. I'm good with that. Um, Before we get to uh, those fights that are coming up, though, we do have some other action to discuss from this past weekend. And let's start with a fight that took place at a blessedly early hour. (laughs) Gennady Golovkin and Ryota Murata touch gloves at about 8 a.m. Eastern time on Saturday, just hours after the conclusion of Triple G's 40th birthday. And it looked for the first four rounds like Murata might spoil his party, but Golovkin eventually got on track. He hurt Murata with a right hand at the start of round nine, and later in the round, dropped him with a counter right, and the corner immediately threw in the towel. TKO win for Triple G at 2-11 of the ninth, raising his record to 42-1-1 with 37 knockouts, and prompting blow-by-blow announcer Corey Erdman to declare, bring on Canelo. I'm not so sure I want to bring on Canelo. Mm. I realize that it's happening whether I like it or not if Canelo beats Dimitri Bivol in four weeks, but I thought Golovkin looked slow and rigid and was way too easy to hit. He needed nine rounds of digging fairly deep to get rid of a guy he would have dusted in three one-sided rounds in his prime. He also seemed to be sucking wind at times. In short, he looked amazing for your average 40-year-old, but kind of lousy for a guy who's about to step in the ring with the pound-for-pound best fighter in the world. Kieran, you've covered Golovkin closely from the moment he first fought in the U.S. You got to know him and his team. What did you think of this performance against Murata, and how are you feeling about a Canelo fight off this? I'm 100% in accord with your opinion here. Um, Look, I mean, even in his pomp, he could sometimes, he had that body language sometimes where early on in a fight, he could perhaps get tagged a bit more than you expected. And remember always afterwards, Abel Sanchez would be saying, oh, we deliberately got hit so that Canelo would fight us. Um, (laughs) And there would be times early on where it almost looked like he was sucking wind. He'd pause right in the middle of an offense and kind of bring up his shoulders and bring him down again and, and, and look as if he's sucking wind. But this was different. This looked as if, like, honestly, he was just, you know, fatigued. Uh, just from the exertion just after a couple of rounds. Obviously, just absurd levels of physical conditioning, really. But, you know, it's all all relative. And he was getting hit more cleanly, more often, and for a longer period of the fight than we'd seen before. A a better fighter than Murata would not have let Golovkin off the hook so easily, I think. Um, We did see that Golovkin's hands remained tremendously heavy. Uh, once he got into a real rhythm and had Murata in trouble, we did see that kind of offensive display. We're, we're so used to it. It reminded me at the end a little of Golovkin's win over Marco Antonio Rubio, the way he was basically just taking time to figure out, well, okay, which angle am I going to start right. throwing punches from to hit him? He was he was just basically taking a step back and, and throwing everything he could at, at every conceivable angle. But uh, yeah, so offensively, when he got going... It was one thing, but the incoming that he was allowing, his response, his reaction to body punches, yeah, it just, it it, it wasn't fantastic. It, it's possible to see that here was a guy who, even at 40 years old, would probably start as a favorite against just about any other middleweight. Who, a guy who's dispatched a stubborn foe, ultimately emphatically, but who is clearly far from the force he was. And he'll not only start as a huge underdog against the man he was basically even with four and five years ago, but about whom you worry a little bit about. I'm 
he's so he's a, he's a prideful man mm. um and he hates canelo alvarez with a passion and feels wronged by this whole rivalry and you can make a case that he was wronged by it that canelo waited until he saw just the right amount of decline in golovkin before he fought him and then that you know, golovkin you can make the case that that golovkin could have come away with much better record than 0-1 and one out of those two fights very easily but I don't think there's going to be any doubt at all about the ending of this one. And I think he's going to get badly beaten. I could see him getting stopped. And I worry that he'll end up being even more bitter about mm. having Canelo Alvarez in his life in any way by the time it's done. And uh, yeah, I, I I would rather he wasn't taking the fight. There are many millions, literally, of reasons why he should. Right. But this would be an awfully good time to just stop. Um, the other big fight of the weekend involved a major star, an upcoming star, 17 years Golovkin's junior at the Alamo Dome in San Antonio. An announced crowd of 14,459 turned out to watch Ryan Garcia make his return to the ring after a 15-month layoff. It looked on paper like an easy matchup for Garcia against Emmanuel Tego, and that's exactly how it played out. Uh, Garcia dropped Tego with a right hand in round two, had him nearly down a few other times, most notably in round 10 on a chopping right hand, had Tego holding on desperately, but Garcia couldn't end it inside the distance. Instead, hearing perhaps unfairly some boos from a disappointed crowd, winning a decision by scores of 119-108 twice and 118-109, as he improves to 22-0 with 18 KOs. Eric? What did you think of Garcia in his first fight under new trainer Joe Goosen, who was fully rocking the Goosen denim <laughs> in the corner? Uh, did we learn anything that we did not really know about Garcia here? Yeah, I'll stand by what I said going in, that there was never going to be that much to learn about Garcia. Mm -hmm. Unless, of course, he somehow lost. Then we would learn right. something. But it was clear after a minute or two of this fight that there was no chance he was going to lose. So, you know, we got proof of the basic fact that his mental health struggles are something he can overcome. He appears to be managing them for now. He looked like the same Ryan Garcia in the ring Saturday. It was interesting. Garcia was critical afterward of his own inability to cut off the ring. Um, I actually didn't see any problems there. I thought he cut it off just fine. My critique is that he fell into clinching range mm. too often. You know, he landed good shots, then fell in. And Tego wasn't shy about holding on when Garcia gave him those opportunities. That's something for Goosen and Garcia to work on. But really, not a ton to take away from this because Tego was not capable of creating any adversity for Garcia. This was every bit the safe fight the odds makers pegged it as. And it was a physical mismatch from the start. I mean, the size and height difference, it wasn't as pronounced as Fundora Lubin, of course, but it was pronounced. You saw it right from the start. Garcia... Bigger, taller, faster, more explosive. This was an easy way for him to shake off the rust. Hopefully his next fight will be a return to at least the Luke Campbell level of opposition. Yeah. Uh, there were a few other noteworthy fights this weekend, although I'm going to preface this by saying I simply didn't have time before our podcast recording to watch them all. Just way too much boxing at once on a Saturday <laughs> night, and I ran out of time, so I only watched highlights, and I have no opinions on any scorecards. And the scorecards were part of the story in some of these fights. On the Garcia-Tago undercard, Shane Mosley Jr. scored an upset win over Gabe Rosado, scores of 98-92, 97-93, and 95-95, and everyone who watched seemed thoroughly outraged by that 95-95 card from Judge Angel Mendez Ramos. 
apparently this fight was not at all close. Um, also on that broadcast, Marlena Sparza kept her flyweight belt with a unanimous decision over 46-year-old Naoko Fujioka in what everyone thought was an extremely close fight, uh, everyone except two of the judges. Lisa Jampa was close enough to the viewing public at 97-93, but Jesse Reyes and Wilfredo Esperon both scored at a 100-90 shutout, failing to give Fujioka a single round. And lastly, on ESPN, from Costa Mesa, California, no scorecard controversy, as 130-pound titleist Michaela Mayer remained unbeaten by outpointing Jennifer Hahn. Scores were 100-90 twice and 99-91. Kieran, I'm not sure if you watched any more of these fights than I did. Uh, anything you'd like to comment on here? Um, I'm much the same as you. There's only so much boxing I, I can watch in one night, especially when I need to be in bed by eight. Um, <laughs> but I was struck by the Mosley Rosado result. Not as a huge shock that at some point the Rosado comeback train should come off the rails at right. his age and with the miles on his odometer, you could argue it was overdue, honestly. I'm just surprised that Mosley was the one who took it to him, though. He, he hadn't shown any signs to my mind of being able to step up to, to that kind of level. And based on, on, you know, what I read and heard and, and the reaction, I felt bad for Naoko Fujoka. Um, it sounded very much as if Esparza started strongly and Fujoka closed it up until Esparza clen clinched it over the final couple of rounds. But none of that narrative was at all reflected in, in two of those scorecards. And that's a long way to come at 46 years old to put on a huge effort and not get any kind of reward. You know, we talk often about scorecards in other countries, but it could be just as bad here if you're a visiting yep. fighter. So yeah, to come all that way and feel like there was nothing you could have done yeah. to have gotten the win is just got to yeah. be really deflating. Exactly. Okay, that was a, a whole lot of boxing action this past Saturday across a variety of networks, and we have just as much going on next Saturday, almost all of it on Showtime and Showtime Pay-Per-View. There is one other fight of note on DAZN from Manchester, England, Connor Ben versus Chris Van Heerden, but we talked about that when it was signed. There's not much more to say. So let's dig right into the big fight of the weekend. It's the undefeated pound-for-pounder Errol Spence Jr., bringing a record of 27-0 with 21 KOs and two welterweight belts into the ring at AT&T Stadium in Arlington, Texas, against Manny Pacquiao conqueror Jordanis Ugas, who is 27-4 with 12 KOs and brings one belt of his own to the proceedings. Spence hasn't had a soft touch in quite a while. His last three fights uh, have all gone the full 12 rounds, all victories for Spence over Mikey Garcia, Sean Porter, and Danny Garcia. But as we discussed recently with his trainer, Derek James, he's been inactive for 16 months due to a retinal tear. So here's the list of potential issues that could trip Spence up. A fairly long layoff, recovery from an eye injury, which came not long after he recovered from other facial injuries suffered in his car wreck, the risk of looking past Ugas because all anyone wants to talk about is Spence versus hmm. Tweet of the Week winner Terrence Crawford, and Ugas himself who has a pretty darn good track record as an underdog. How concerned do you think fans should be, Kieran, about any of those potential pitfalls for Spence? Uh, and, and how important is it for Spence to look spectacular in this fight and increase the clamor for a Crawford fight versus just making sure to escape Arlington with a W? Well, so to take the first part, you know, should his fans be concerned? I mean, in, t in terms of the injuries, it, it's hard to say, you know, um, there's that psychological issue, but, you know, boxers are resilient and have that incredible capacity to compartmentalize and, and put, you know, such concerns aside. And I'm, I'm sure Errol Spence, you know, will do that. Uh, I doubt 
you know, it will affect him that way. And and physically, we've seen him fight since the accident. We haven't seen him fight since the detached retina, but that condition is no longer the automatic career killer it once was. I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's not really a factor. Um, not having been in the ring for a while, I think is conceivably actually a, 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 an issue. Again, we've seen him fight on the back of a, of, of a fairly lengthy break and he's done well, but now this is yet another one. Mm. Um, you know, if he was that kind of guy, if he was a, a, a cutie pie of a boxer who relied an awful lot on like his, his timing and his counter punching, I think it might be more of an issue than him being the kind of boxer that he is. But it's, you know, it's rarely very good, but we're also at a point where an awful lot of boxers have been spending more time out of the ring than they would want to over the last couple of years. And, you know, you get the impression from talking to Derek that the Spence is in the gym an awful lot. So, again, I, I don't know how much of an issue that's going to be. I don't think there's any concern or any reason to be concerned that he's in any way focused on Terence Crawford or overlooking or diminishing Ugas. Um, we talked earlier just now, actually, about how boxers know boxers. And I feel like other boxers have known for a long time just how dangerous Ugas is, almost right before most boxing fans caught on, really. Um, so of your potential pitfalls, the biggest is the fact that Ugas is damn good. Um, and for that reason, no, I don't think he does need to look spectacular. Um, I think the fans have caught up to boxers in their recognition of Ugas, you know, courtesy of the close fight against Sean Porter and particularly the win over Pacquiao. I think simply beating Ugas is a statement in itself if he's able to do that. If he beats him with any kind of comfort, be it, you know, say, I think like a 16-12 decision win over a guy like your Dennis Ugas is pretty impressive. Yeah. If he's able to do something like that, I think that would be really significant in and of itself. If it's even wider or, good heavens, even a stoppage, I mean, that would be spectacular. You know, you could even make the case that a closer fight might help get the Crawford fight get made, right? Mm. Like, Team Spence very much regards itself with some validity as the bigger draw in this matchup. I mean, we've heard it when, we, when we've talked to Derek all the time. You know, it's like it's all about the money. You know, what is Crawford going to bring? The money's right and so on. And if, they're, if Errol's somehow able to wipe out your Dennis Ugas, they're going to become even more entrenched, I think, in, in that position. I think perhaps an element of vulnerability uh, in a win might actually kind of help get everybody to the table and make the fight happen a little bit. Um, but yeah, no, I don't think he needs to look spectacular. I think, uh, I think a win would be quite a statement in and of itself. Um, and, you know, if, you, if you're new to your Dennis Ugas, you might look at his record of 27 and four and think, why are you talking this guy up? That doesn't sound a very spectacular record, but he started his career 15 and three. And over the last six years, he's gone 12 and one. And that one loss was the one we just mentioned, a, a split decision against Sean Porter that was a disputed split decision. He's defeated Jamal James, Brian Perella, Thomas Delorme, Omar Figueroa, and he actually sent Manny Pacquiao into retirement. Uh, at 35 years old, he's a late bloomer, and he is the promotional B-side. He is the underdog. But let me ask you this, because you're the betting guy. How big of an underdog are the sports books saying he is how accurate do you think those lines are? And stylistically, we said about what a tough opponent he is, but what does Ugas's path to a victory actually look like? All right, so I've checked a few sports books on this fight, and I'm seeing Ugas at 
plus 300, plus 320, up to plus 340. So somewhere between a 3 to 1 and the 3.5 to 1 kind of underdog, which fans and bettors may recall is basically exactly how he was priced against Pacquiao, and we know how that turned out. Mm. Um, But I think that the knowledgeable boxing fan understood that the Pacquiao-Ugas betting line was off, that that sportsbooks overpriced Pacquiao because the general public loves him and wants to bet him. And to the casual fan, Ugas was a total unknown. This three to one or so kind of line, I think it's closer to accurate and fair because A, Errol Spence doesn't get the beloved global superstar bump that Manny Pacquiao got. And you kind of hinted at this. People know Ugas a little better now. Mm, He's not getting mm. overlooked in the same way anymore. It's a little tricky for me to say exactly how accurate I think the line is without giving away my prediction. Like if I say that it's a perfectly accurate line, that (laughs) means I don't think there's better than a 25% chance Ugas wins. And uh, you would know that I'm picking Spence. So for now, I'll just say with Spence around minus 450 or minus 500 to win, I'm definitely not taking his side. I am not more than 80% confident that Errol Mm -hmm. Spence wins. Um, Stylistically, for Ugas to win, I think... First and foremost, he absolutely needs to win the battle of the jabs. Yep. The jab is an enormous part of his game, but it's a big part of Spence's game as well. And Spence is a southpaw, so it's not going to be an easy fight within the fight to win. Um, it occurred to me this week, um, Ugas, I was looking for a comp. I've decided he is the non-southpaw modern-day Winky Wright. Mm. A bit of a late bloomer, as you said. Not easy to market. Nobody's dying to fight him. A little unlucky in close decisions, or at least one in particular. He keeps plugging away, and eventually he gets his opportunities. You know, Winkies came against Mosley and Trinidad once Winky was into his 30s. Ugas's against Pacquiao and Spence. And these guys eventually get their chance to make everyone realize, wow, okay, this guy is really good. Now, Winky went all the way to the Hall of Fame. Ugas... He doesn't have anywhere close to a Hall of Fame resume yet, but he just might if he beats Errol Spence. Um, So back to the stylistic discussion, he's not a southpaw, but otherwise he's a lot like Winky, reliant on the jab, steady, smart, defensively sound, not like a super dynamic athletic marvel, more of a technician. So he has to win the battle of the jabs. Against Sean Porter, of the 449 punches Ugas threw, 226 were jabs against Pacquiao. He threw 234 jabs out of 405 total punches. And it's notable that against a Southpaw in Pacquiao, Ugas was accurate. He landed 50 jabs. He also landed a ridiculous 59% of his power shots while holding Pacquiao to just a 16% connect rate overall. Now I realize Spence isn't the same sort of Southpaw as Pacquiao and he's much younger and fresher, of course, but I think we can safely say that Ugas is comfortable against a southpaw. In fact, uh, Louis de Cubas Jr. specifically said Ugas loves fighting lefties. Um, but he's almost certainly going to be outworked by Spence, and he's going to have to survive Spence's exceptional body attack. So, you know, Ugas's path to victory in this fight is to outjab Spence, make Spence hesitant to throw, make it kind of a winky right type fight where mm-hmm. the rounds are ticking by. And there isn't great drama. There's just Spence struggling to get good work done. And you look up after like 10 rounds and Spence is wondering, where did the time go? I'm down like seven to three and I only have two rounds left. That's the kind of fight that Ugas needs to make it. 
And uh, I've now done pretty much everything possible to dance around making a pick while analyzing <laughs> this matchup. So let's get to our picks for Spence Ugas. Again, you are leading 23 to 15, and it's your turn to go first. So what is your pick for Spence Ugas? Look, I think this is going to be a tough, tough fight. I mean, Ugas, you, you could make the case that Ugas is in many ways the strongest, toughest, maybe best all-round opponent Spencer's faced yet. And I say that knowing full well that Spencer's fought the likes of Mikey Garcia and Danny Garcia and Sean Porter and Kel Brook. But it's the fact that he's fought those guys that makes me think that Spence has the edge here. He has consistently been in tough, as you mentioned at the top of this segment, against the very best that the division has to offer. And he's always emerged on top and never with any controversy in the ending. And so even though I fully expect Errol Spence to have a lot of trouble with Ugas, and for the two men to be constantly battling to assert superiority, like you said, especially behind their jabs, I think that Spence is going to have the added tools to change up the pace when he has to, to find the different angles, to alter the nature of the offense, change up the distance. I think that's going to be enough to just keep his nose consistently in front in a contest that, I think it is, you know, to follow on from your point. I think it's going to be very jabby. I think it's going to be close and tense and absorbing without ever truly catching light. I don't think this is going to be a classic contest, but it's going to be very high quality nonetheless. But I think the Spence is going to be ahead. I think he's going to constantly stay ahead, but not by a huge amount. I think Spence ekes out a decision that, well, at the end of it, we'll think that he won. But the scores will be close, like 115, 113, and we'll, and both of those things will be fine. That it'll be close, but everyone will be in agreement that Spence will win. And I do think it'll be sort of 115, 113-ish across the board. Unanimous decision win for Errol Spence Jr. Yeah, we're, we're kind of on the same page here. I mean, I, I definitely think Ugas is a live underdog. Um, you know, even the best version of Spence that we've seen, I, I still think he's going to have his hands full with this guy. I do wonder, will we see the best version of Spence? He has some questions to answer. The ones I posed to you, the layoff, the eye, the pressure of carrying a pay-per-view in basically his hometown also. Um, Ugas is a tough out for anyone under any circumstances, but after I cost myself by going out on a limb with the Terrell Gachet upset pick a few weeks ago, <laughs> I can't quite do it again here. Um, from a betting perspective, I would definitely sooner take 3-1 to one on Ugas than 1-4 to four or greater on Spence. But without odds, just as a straight-up pick, I am leaning towards Spence. His body attack is so good, and there's no way to really defend against it. Um, if anything, Ugas's stationary cover-up defense makes him that much easier of a target for the body shots. I think it's a close, tough fight for Spence. We might be asking ourselves after six rounds or even eight rounds, mm -hmm. you know, oh boy, is Ugas winning? But sort of like he did against Sean Porter, I see Spence pulling it out late. And if necessary, of course, getting the benefit of the doubt on the scorecards at home. Mm -hmm. So I, too, am going to take Spence by close unanimous decision, setting the stage for months of back and forth between Spence and Crawford, where we will get very sick of hearing numbers <laughs> like 60-40 and 70-30 yep. thrown around. <laughs> yep, exactly. Um, all right, look, Spence Ugas will be the last of checks notes six <laughs> televised fights on this card uh the undercard is broken up into two segments there's a pair of fights that will air on showtime from 7 to 9 p.m eastern uh leading up to the pay-per-view and then three fights airing on the undercard as part of the pay-per-view those three fights each scheduled for 10 rounds each pitting an up-and-comer against a veteran are 
In the lightweight division, 22-2-1, Isak Pitbull Cruz versus 30-4, Yuri Orkis Gamboa. Also at 135 pounds, 11-0, Jose Valenzuela against 27-3-2, Francisco Vargas. And at welterweight, 20-0, Cody Crowley versus 38-8, Josecito Lopez. Who or what are you most looking forward to among that trio of fights? Well, all the young guys are, are what I'm looking forward to most, um, which, which is a sentence that might get me in some trouble out of context. <laughs> Hopefully nobody clips that and, and plays it without the context. Um, you have uh, Valenzuela, who's just 22, Pitbull Cruz, who's only 23, and the old man of the group, Crowley, who's 29, but still a fighter on the way up with possibly a bright future. Crowley might actually be matched the toughest of the three, uh, as even at age 37 with eight losses, Josecito Lopez doesn't look to me like a faded fighter. He's won five of his last six. The lone loss was a majority decision to Keith Thurman. Um, Lopez versus Crowley, uh, who, of course, uh, Showtime boxing fans will recall. Crowley is the Canadian fighter who upset Kudratio Abdukakarov in December while looking a lot less slow than he appeared in the video that we watched beforehand. Um, Lopez versus Crowley is a pretty competitive looking fight to my eyes. Francisco Vargas is, I think, a much older 37 than Josecito Lopez is. He actually lost to Pitbull Cruz last time out. That did go the 10-round distance, so maybe he can give us a sense of what Valenzuela's ceiling is. Um, Valenzuela, largely untested, more prospect than contender, but they have started stepping him up quickly, so that's a good sign that his handlers believe in him. He's a southpaw. He sparred with Teofimo Lopez, and he says that he has twice knocked Teofimo yeah. out in sparring with body shots. So he has a lot going for him. And then Pitbull Cruz, we know he's world-class. He nearly beat Javante Davis last time out. And Gamboa is 40 now, still a name in boxing, but he'd better have more left than just his name if he's going to hang in there with the relentless Cruz. So ultimately, this undercard gives three fighters on the rise a chance to make a statement. It'll be interesting to see which one makes the loudest statement and creates mm-hmm. the biggest buzz for himself. Mm-hmm. Um, on the Showtime pre-show, two fights. Uh, it starts with what has become a familiar name for Showtime viewers, as well as Showtime podcast listeners, as well as Tweet of the Week uh, runner-up trackers, <laughs> uh, junior welterweight KO artist Brandon Lee, now 24-0 against 21-2 Zachary Ochoa, trained by another good friend of the podcast, Breadman Edwards. Uh, that's scheduled for 10 and scheduled for 12 at welterweight, winner to become one of the alphabet mandatories for the Spence Ugas winner, 14-0 Rajab Butayev versus 13-0 Emantis Stanionis. What has your attention among those two fights, Kieran? Always happy to see Brandon Lee, of course, um, but I've been really looking forward to Butayev Stanionis. Um, this is a quality matchup of excellent welterweights, um, and I think it's a treat that we're getting it on off the pay-per-view card. Uh, Stanionis was in line to meet Ugas, um, before agreeing that Ugas, actually, after beating Pacquiao, fully deserved the shot against Spence, agreed to take some uh, step-aside money um, and, and and allow Ugas to go ahead and, and get that shot. Um, if he wins against Butayev, like he said, you know, he'll be in line to, to get the shot against the main event winner. How good is Stanionis? Look, notwithstanding the fact that he has previous in terms of, of, of hyperbole, Freddie Roach said Stanionis walking into the wildcard gym was the second most significant event in the gym's history after Manny Pacquiao's arrival. <laughs> So, but as Freddie has been known to exaggerate a little at bit, times, sure. At times, he's he's had us switching our picks at <laughs> times. Um, 
And I've just asked previous podcast guest Jamal James about Butayev, who who took it to him and stopped him on Showtime last fall. I'm very excited by this fight. I think it's it's a tremendous matchup of, of potential future welterweight titleists and an excellent idea to have this as the, the sort of final amuse-bouche, if you will, before the actual pay-per-view. If you're thinking, do I want to spend this money on this pay-per-view and this is the fight that you see that's going to make you make that decision, uh, I think you're probably going to end up buying that pay-per-view. Yeah. Oh boy, you just like any excuse to say a moose puce. I do. Yes, I do. It's one of one of those phrases you enjoy. Yes. <laughs> um, so th- this is a lot of undercard fights for us to make picks on, but they are all well worth picking. So let's do it for all five, but we'll do it lightning round style. Sure. Uh, each pick in 30 seconds or less. If you take 31 seconds, you automatically get zero points for that fight. And actually, you've already promised to take a zero by not picking one of these. There you so go. Maybe, maybe you'll just go over 30 and I'll call you on it. Um, I'll get it started and uh, we'll work our way up the card. So I'll start with Brandon Lee versus Zach Ochoa. And um, I'll do respect to Breadman. I can't pick his guy here. Uh, Lee is a beast. We know this. Breadman would admit this. I think it's a KO, but Ochoa gives him more rounds than most. I'll say Brandon Lee, KO six. <laughs> yeah, well, we're off to a good start. Right. Um, I even had in my notes, lots of respect for our man Breadman Edwards, <laughs> but <laughs> um, very good amateur, not tremendous as a pro Ochoa. Um, he lost his most recent outing by a country mile, despite the fact that it was in an arena without any crowds. And Breadman, realizing that, shouted very loudly every time Ochoa even came close to landing a punch and managed to completely influence the judge who was sitting next to him uh, to give Ochoa the, the win on his card, even though Ochoa clearly lost on the other two cards. That notwithstanding, look, he's never been down before Ochoa, but he'll go down in this fight. I have the same as you. He will give Lee some rounds. He'll be the second person to take him past four, but not much more than that. Uh, Lee TKO six, same of as course. you. Of course. Yeah, I'm of not course. making up any ground uh, yet in our picks competition, no matter what. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so, yeah, uh, the other pre-pay-per-view fight is Butayev Stanionis. Uh, Butayev has twice defeated Stanionis in the amateurs, um, but that won't count here. Um, as exceptional as he looked against Jamal James, he's up against a different caliber of opposition here. Um, Butayev would have already had a loss on his record had his opponent not tested positive afterwards. And, and I think Stanionis has the skills here to, to withstand what Butayev is able to throw at him. I, I think he's just that notch above. But my goodness, it's going to be an excellent contest. But at the end of it, I believe that Stanionis will have a close but unanimous decision win. Okay. Uh, we finally do have a chance for me to make up some ground or fall further behind. Um, I love this fight. Exactly what you were saying. Really smart to put this on the pre-show and maybe maybe get people in the mood at the last second to want to spend some money to watch more boxing. And uh, when it comes to making a pick, maybe I'm letting Butayev's performance last time out against Jamal James resonate a little too strongly. But he just seemed like such a pain in the ass yeah. in that fight <laughs> that I can't pick against him. I think it's going to be really close for half a fight and then Butayev takes over. Has Stanionis maybe even almost ready to go toward the end, but I think Stanionis will hang in there. I'll take Butayev by unanimous decision, moving to 3-0 and against Stanionis, counting those amateur fights you mentioned. <laughs> okay. uh, next up, Crowley versus Lopez. As I hinted earlier, I am having a tough time with this one. I feel like the Riverside Rocky has one more upset win in him. I'm not sure if this is it. I will say Crowley has a great story, great motivation. Every fight is make or break for him financially, at least until he scores a huge payday that allows him to relax a little. He's definitely not sleeping in those silk PJs yet. So 
I'm going to say hunger and youth and will to win. Carry him through. Let's go with Crowley by majority decision after 10 rounds. We're wildly different on this pick. <laughs> okay. Um, look, I agree with you. Lopez has the experience. Um, he'll, he'll bring the effort. He's produced upsets before. Um, but, you know, it's 10 years since he broke Victor Ortiz's jaw. And, and I'm not sure that even at his peak, he was, you know, necessarily really ever considered a, a real contender, which, which, which Crowley arguably is, is getting into that position. Like you, I was a bit surprised by his outing last time in terms of how good he was and how non-slow he was. Uh, I think Lopez will make him work very, very hard for this. But I think ultimately youth will prevail, but it, it is going to be very close. I actually have Crowley by split decision in this. Right. Radically different from yours. <laughs> um, next up is Jose Valenzuela against Francisco Vargas. I actually have a slight feeling this may be a little bit of a sad one. Uh, Vargas is 37 now. He's been an outstanding competitor, um, but he's continuing to cut and bleed as he did last time out against Isaac Cruz, even as he attempted to fight a more controlled and disciplined fight against Cruz. Valenzuela is a fast starter. I just have a feeling that this is going to be an end of the road type fight for Vargas. I think Valenzuela might blow him out. I'm going to go Valenzuela KO4. Okay. Um, so Valenzuela is not the most defensively responsible young fighter. You know, he holds his hands low, could get him into trouble against certain guys. I don't think Vargas has what it takes anymore to take advantage of that. I think it'll be an entertaining clash of styles and good action for as long as it lasts. But um, like you, I, I think Valenzuela is talented enough to really make Vargas look his age. I don't think Vargas's new trainer, Ismael Salas, makes a difference here. I think this ends in a KO or a TKO, maybe cuts, maybe a pure knockout. Um, either way, I also see Valenzuela ending it inside the distance, but not quite as quickly as you. I'm saying Valenzuela KO7. And uh, lastly, we have Pitbull versus Gamboa. And I know who I'm picking here, but I'm struggling with what the exact <laughs> result will be. Um, Gamboa, this game ain't easy when you're 40. I don't nope. see him coping with Isak Cruz. But, you know, which Cruz are we going to get? The, that all-out assault version that stopped Diego Magdaleno in one round? Or the guy who applies pressure but doesn't cause a ton of hurt? The guy who's gone the distance in his last three fights? I keep going back and forth on whether Gamboa is crafty enough to last here. I'll say he doesn't last. He's been knocked down 17 times <laughs> in his career. He's been knocked out three times. I think the beating becomes intense, and his corner throws in the towel in round eight. It cracks me up sometimes how I think we must read each other's notes because <laughs> I actually have here, I find this fight ever so slightly tricky, not in terms of who will win, but how. <laughs> um, amazing. There's really no need for there to be two hosts of this podcast. <laughs> I'm not sure which one of us there they should get rid of, but it's it's really the overlap. It makes one of us non-essential. Yep. Indeed, indeed. Um, they, well, here you go. Like whoever wins the picks contest gets to remain as host. Was it whoever won the picks contest the first couple of times remains as host? Yeah, I agree. Yep. Whoever wins it two times in a row, starting with last year. Um, <laughs> look, Gamboa has slipped into gatekeeper mode. That doesn't count against my 30 seconds, by the way. No, I'm okay, sorry. Gamboa... You're out of time. Your pick on this one doesn't count. <laughs> Gamboa has somehow slipped into, into gatekeeper mode. But even so, his only losses have been to Crawford, um, Castellanos, Haney, and, and Tank Davis. And it took Crawford a while to stop him. and took Tank almost the entire fight to stop him. Um 
I think Cruz will have to work at this a bit. The style matchup might not be great for him. I'm the same as you. Like, what kind of Gamboa do we still have left? Is he the Gamboa who has what it takes to land some strong counters and really sting Cruz coming in? I think in the first half of the fight, yes. In the second half of the fight, not so much. I actually wouldn't be surprised if we have a bit of a shock flash knockdown when Cruz just mm. walks into something from Gamboa early on. But he'll be fine. He'll pick himself back and start working away on him. Ah, maybe it's sentimentality. I'm going to pick Gamboa to still be standing at the end, and I will say Cruz by unanimous decision. Okay. Um, all right. We are nearing the one-hour mark of the podcast, uh, so we're going to keep the lightning round approach going here with the news segment. And hasn't been that busy of a week for outside the ring news anyway. There isn't really a major item worthy of main event status. So we're just going to do an undercard here. Um, now, I'm not sure this counts as big news, but it's at least a big name in the news. Hall of Famer Floyd Mayweather is returning for another exhibition bout. On May 14th, the 45-year-old Mayweather will face former sparring partner Dangerous Don Moore on a helipad in Dubai. That is not a delayed April Fool's joke. That's actually the news. Uh, next item, Cuban boxers are about to be able, for the first time since the 1960s, to fight as pros without fleeing Cuba. Although it's not quite as paradigm shifting as it sounds at first, they're allowed to fight for one specific promotional company in Mexico called Golden Ring. Still, they will get paid, reportedly keeping 80% of their purses while the rest goes to trainers, doctors, and the Cuban Federation of Boxing. Uh, undefeated Massachusetts welterweight Speedy Rashidi Ellis, who has been inactive for a year and a half, has left Golden Boy and signed with PBC. And lastly, Welshman Lee Selby, who held a piece of the featherweight title from 2015 to 2018, has announced his retirement at age 35 after consecutive losses to George Cambosos in 2020 and Gustavo Lemos two weeks ago. Selby finishes with a record of 28 and 4 nine KOs. Kieran, what would you like to comment on among these items? So it's, as you said, it's a busy episode. It's a full episode. So the only thing I really have to comment on, look, it's allegedly a free country and you're all free to spend your money on whatever makes you happy. But if you buy that Mayweather pay-per-view, you're an idiot. Um, I mean, Freud isn't going to go out and be entertaining just to entertain you. He, he doesn't care about that. He wants attention and money. That's it. And he keeps doing this because he calculates there are enough stupid people who keep falling for his stick every time. I mean, God bless him. He's fully entitled to do what he does. He continues to make a fortune at it. And who among us, hand on heart, can honestly say we'd do anything different if we had the opportunity? The reason he, he's picked uh, this guy as his opponent is, I suspect, just because he's a bit embarrassed that Logan Paul lasting as long as he did. And he probably wants to have somebody to wipe out in an exhibition. But he's not doing that for you. He's doing that for him. Again, do what you want with your money, but you'd have to stick hot pokers under my fingernails to get me to spend my money on it. <laughs> Boy, I sure hope Showtime doesn't somehow get involved in this production. Uh, <laughs> we're going we're to have a lot of stuff to delete. But, but at but, least uh, if they do, Showtime would probably like pay us expenses to watch it. So <laughs> there, there you go. Um, yeah, I, I want to comment quickly on this fight as well, because it's just weird. You know, Don Moore is just as old as Floyd. He's 45. He went 18 0 and 1 from 1999 to 2016, fighting zero opponents with winning records. Uh, it's just strange. You know, there's no novelty to this opponent. Yeah. It's simply the question of will people pay to watch Floyd show off some skills one more time? It's starting to feel like Floyd is just going to keep doing this every year or two against safer and safer opponents and might keep doing it for another 10 years. Um, so. 
with that in mind, I am starting to get myself in shape now, just in case <laughs> I get the call. When, you know, when we see Floyd at the Hall of Fame, I ought to call him out, you know, get on his radar, start promoting this thing. I mean, honestly, Mayweather versus Raskin sells at least as well on pay-per-view as Mayweather versus Moore, right? You'd buy it, Kieran. I know you're not buying oh, this I'd one. Oh, I'd buy that. You'd buy that one. Not, not for any of the right reasons, but you would buy it. <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe I'd work your corner. Oh, there you go. Oh, yeah. And you know what? If you're working my corner, that means that you would also be part of the uh, Mayweather versus Raskin All Access, uh, which would be tremendous, I'm sure. You know, great footage of me making coffee, walking my dog, throwing out my back, sneezing, falling asleep on the couch, taking lactate. Actually, I can't even take lactate. That's that's how washed I am. Lactate doesn't even work for me, so I have to stay away. Not doing a good job of selling this (laughs) pay-per-view. I guess not. Never mind. Oh, well, it was a great idea for the 12 seconds that the uh, idea was kicking around in my mind. (laughs) All right. All right. Let's wrap things up with this week's top five list. Last week, you set me the challenge of naming five fights that took place a few years too late. And although you insisted it was not in any way revenge for the unexpectedly tough challenge I set you Mm -hmm. to name the five best 154 pound fights, I'm going to go ahead and call us even because this <laughs> yeah, it's fair. much, much tougher than I expected it to be. I have every expectation that we will have very different results here and that there will be many that I forgot. Um, one thing that struck me as kind of interesting, and, and I, I don't know why this happened this way, but three of my five are either rematches or the third fight in a trilogy. Uh, okay. Only two were actual, you know, standalone fights so far anyway. Um, but anyway, here we go. Let's see what we have going on here. Uh, number five for me, September 17th, 1994. Julio Cesar Chavez, TKO8, Meldrick Taylor. Um, when Chavez and Taylor met in 1990, it was a classic. It was a brutal affair in which Taylor won, you know, the, the was winning the fight through the first 11.75 rounds of the fight. But Chavez won the attritional war. And ultimately, as we know, with just seconds remaining in the fight itself, the time for a rematch would surely have been soon after that epic encounter. But by the time they met, again, four years later, everything had changed. Chavez had gotten away with a gift of a draw against Pernell Whitaker, a loss to Frankie Randall. Taylor had lost to Terry Norris and Crisanto Espana. The rematch had nothing of the quality of the first contest. Uh, Taylor attempting to box early, as he did in the first meeting. But once Chavez cracked him with a straight right in the sixth, it was pretty much one-way traffic until Chavez dropped Taylor to the seat of his pants in the eighth and referee Mills Lane saved him from further punishment. After the sheer excitement and enthrallment and, and, and controversy of the first fight, this was just a bit sad, really, and was really a good three years later than it should have been. Yeah, you were uh, your prediction that our list would look a little different or a lot different uh, is already proven correct because okay. this was not on my list. It just didn't occur to me. It's a perfect choice. It really okay. fits this perfectly. I just uh, this one didn't pass through my mind. But yeah, you're absolutely right that two years earlier, this is a huge deal and perhaps a very competitive fight. Uh, but by the time that it happened, yeah, dud. <laughs> Yeah, well, there you go. That was a much more concise way of explaining it. Very good. <laughs> you can do uh, that for all the remaining ones if you want. Right. Just we say, already got a time, yeah. Just just <laughs> okay. say dud and move on, yeah. Uh, so, you know, December 7th, 1989, Sugar Ray Leonard, 112, Roberto Duran. Eh, dud. There you go. <laughs> right? Uh, their first two meetings were in 1980. Um, we all know about them. We don't need to go about on about them too much. Um, 
there are good reasons why, if there had been the clamor for a third fight, it didn't happen very soon after those two. Uh, Leonard, as we know, famously retired and then unretired and then re-retired over the course of several years. Um, by the time he decided he, he wanted to, to face Duran again, after he came back and, and beat Marvin Hagler and Donnie Lalonde, Duran had been through the whole roller coaster uh, that we talked about when we were uh, reviewing Matt Whitecross's Four Kings series wins against Davey Moore uh, and ultimately Iran Barkley, losses to Wilfred Benitez, Tommy Hearns, Marvin Hagler. Uh, finally, they came together for a third time, nine years after their second meeting, and it was just awful. Uh, Leonard boxed and boxed, Duran huffed and puffed. It, it was not a fight befitting of the rivalry or really of any of the four kings, let's be honest. Yeah, all right. So this one is in my top five. Um, and yeah, uh, excellent pick. Both guys were just playing it safe too much throughout this fight uh, it's this is one where it's hard to know if it would have been much better a year oh, earlier right. two years earlier seven years earlier maybe it would have been uh, we can agree though it couldn't have been worse had it happened earlier yes <laughs> indeed uh number three um april 3rd 2010 17 years 17 years is how long it took to make this particular rematch. Bernard Hopkins won 12, Roy Jones. You can make the case that it should be on the list because how many people were really, truly clamoring for it, which was part of the the, the thing, that, the challenge that you'd set me, that they were fights that people wanted to see that happened too late. You could make the case that after their first encounter in 1993, not very many people wanted to see it again. But there was a point and you could argue that maybe that was after Hopkins had beaten Felix Trinidad in 2001. Mm -hmm. um, Jones was looking a little bit bored with the challenges that he was getting at light heavyweight, where really it would have been an intriguing and interesting contest, even if their first if their first meeting hadn't been terribly exciting. Anytime between then and 2003, but then. After he came back down from heavyweight, Jones, as we know, went into something of a free fall. Hopkins had that long middleweight reign that got ended by Jermaine Taylor. Then he lost to Joe Calzaghi. By the time they finally did meet, I'm not sure that anybody actually really cared. And even though there was a lot of bad blood going into the fight and there was bad blood in the fight, they didn't have enough left to turn that bad blood into anything particularly interesting. This felt like just a couple of old guys working out their personal grudge and making us all watch. <laughs> well, they didn't make us all watch. Uh, I've <laughs> still never seen this fight. Um, oh, man, and, and I saw recently uh, DAZN tweeted that this is in their library, and I was this close to a really snarky comment about how I thought their goal was to attract subscribers. Um, but uh, yeah, I am capable of occasional restraint, apparently. Um, did not tweet that out. But, uh, you know, there actually was uh, the period that you talked about uh, after Hopkins beat Trinidad. There was a little clamor for this. I just remember them sharing an HBO card from two separate venues and right. they were like bickering over satellite with each other. I think in that moment, the, the fight would have been pretty hot yeah. and certainly would have been interesting. Um, so uh, yeah, this, this was more than just a few years too late in 2010. It was like a good seven or eight years too late, but this is also in my top five. Okay. Uh, number two, uh, you did mention when you sent me this challenge, you thought, oh, maybe quite a few of these, some of these fights would be a much more recent, you know, because they're the kind of fights that we have in our memory and that, you know, we're aware of the, the fights taking too long to evolve. This is almost as recent as it is possible to be, February 19th, 2022. 
Kelbrook, TK06, ah. Amir Khan. Um, been talked about for years. Had it taken place around 2016, it might have been huge. It might have been exciting. Uh, it might have been a good fight, but it didn't. Um, they continued to snipe back and forth at each other while finding reasons not to meet. And in the interim, Khan was flattened by Canelo and whooped by Terence Crawford. Brooke literally had his face broken by Gennady Golovkin and Errol Spence before Crawford beat him too. By the time it finally came around, Brooke had a lot more left than Khan. From the opening bell of this far too late clash was obviously shot. Brooke sensed it, stalked him around the ring with a smile on his face, steadily beating him down until the referee stopped the contest in round six. It felt like a fine end to the rivalry from Brooke's perspective. For Khan supporters and for neutrals, it was just sad. Great call. I totally spaced on this. Um, Once again, we're finding there are a lot of holes in my short-term memory because I did not think (laughs) of this one. And uh, there it was just two months or so ago. Um, Perfect example. Exactly what this list is all about. And it just didn't cross my mind. But uh, excellent call there. Number one, perhaps predictably so. uh, May 2nd, 2015. Floyd Mayweather, 112. Manny Pacquiao. Still an enormous event when it finally happened. From beginning to end, in terms of an event, it was one of the best I ever worked. I, I'm, you felt the same way, too. I remember we marveled at each other a lot during fight <laughs> yes. week about what it was like. Uh, I, it was tremendous. And it remains by some distance the richest fight in boxing history. But then the fight happened. Um, look, if there was a time where it should have taken place, it was arguably March 2010. That was when it appeared the two men who'd already been at each other for years were seemingly on the verge of fighting at the new Cowboy Stadium in Arlington, Texas. Mayweather had just come back from a brief retirement. Pacquiao was in the form of his life, having just stopped Miguel Cotto. But Mayweather and Golden Boy uh, promotions pulled out. Pacquiao faced Joshua Clotty instead. And then eight months later in the same arena, Antonio Margarito. And those wins against bigger opponents took a lot out of him. And he was never the same again. He would only score one more knockout in the rest of his career. By the time he met Mayweather, he'd been knocked out by Juan Manuel Marquez and suffered a highly controversial decision lost to Tim Bradley. Look, would things have been any different? It's, it's entirely possible that Mayweather always had the beating of Manny Pacquiao. Um, but I do think the fight would have been more exciting. It would have been more intriguing. Pacquiao would have had more left. There are those who think, like our friend Rafe, who thinks that I'm a little bit too harsh on this fight, hmm. uh, that it wasn't as bad as some of us, i.e. me, say it was, but for the nature of the event, for the amount of build-up that there had been, it was a disappointment. And I do think that had it happened, say, in 2010, it might still have been the same result, but I think we'd have been much, much more entertaining getting there. Yeah, this is number one on my list also. It kind of feels like it has to be. Now, when this happened in 2015, it was perfectly timed from a money-making perspective. Sure. I'll give him that. Um, but yeah, it might've been a great fight four or five years earlier. Might not have been definitely was not a great fight in 2015. I think uh, I side more with you than with, with Rafe. Uh, you want to call it like a C or maybe a C plus in terms of action. Uh, that's about as high as I can go. And of course we had a plus expectations. So a uh, huge disappointment. Yeah. So, and the only other one that came to mind and I, and it's sort of borderline, and I'm very interested to see what the other couple in your top five are that, that I missed, mm-hmm. could make a case for Mayweather-Mosley, because I think there was a time mm-hmm. at around when Mosley was at, at a lightweight, when there was a real bit of a clamor there, and it would have been really exciting and entertaining. And for a couple of rounds, it was still a fun fight. But the fact that 
those first two rounds went the way they did and the success that Mosley had in round two and then not again for a minute of the next 10 rounds, I think showed that perhaps had that fight happened when Mosley had more to him and was at perhaps a better weight for himself, I think that would have been a spectacular fight. As it was, it had a bit of intrigue in one round and otherwise was a bit disappointing. And honestly, that was the only other fight that I could easily come up with um, you know, to even be an, an honorable mention. So I'm really curious what you've come up with that I've completely forgotten about. I, I do have a handful of others, but only a handful. As you said, this was a tougher assignment than, than I realized, and there weren't that many great candidates. But I'll first, before I list my, my other handful here, I will just say that good call on, on Mosley and Mayweather. I didn't think of that one, but now that you mentioned it, I remember we put them on the cover of either the ring or KO, one of our magazines, we put them on together right around that 2000, 2001 mm. talking about the idea of a potential dream fight between the then 135 pound Mosley and 130 pound Mayweather could have been something special at that time. Uh, certainly I didn't think of that one. So the other ones that I had, the other, I had two more that made my top five, obviously, since you had two, I didn't have. And then I had a couple honorable mentions beyond that, that you didn't mention the other two I had in the top five, and now that I've heard your list, these are not better than Brooke Kahn and Chavez Taylor, too. Your, your, yours are probably better than these. But uh, Felix Trinidad and Pernell Whitaker. Um, it wasn't oh, terrible yeah. when it happened in 1999. It was okay. But it might have been a real toss-up in 96 or 97. Mm. Um, and then I did decide to go way back for one fight. Way, way back. Jack Johnson and Jim Jeffries. Um, <laughs> it, was a, it was a mismatch in 1910. Maybe it would have been a great fight in 1905, uh, you know, if the white champions of the time, like right. Jeffries, hadn't been trying to dodge the black contenders like Johnson. So I dug into the history books a bit for that one. And then the only other two that I thought of, I also had a Julio Cesar Chavez fight, although you picked the better one, I think, for this. But Chavez Camacho, I, I don't know um, how different it would have been, but maybe it's a little more competitive in, say, 1989 than it was in 92. Um, and lastly... Cotto Margarito 2. I really? would I would have liked to have seen this before Pacquiao damaged Margarito's eye. Sure. You know, the revenge yeah. wasn't yeah. quite as sweet and didn't mean quite as much because Margarito was damaged goods coming yeah. into that. So, you know, just a year or two earlier, that one might have been a little better. Yeah, no, that's fine. I, 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 I recognize that one. I did almost, I did very briefly think about Johnson Jeffries, actually, okay. and and then just kind of skipped, skipped past it because uh, I wasn't aware of how much better Jim Jeffries would have been before he went on to his alfalfa farm. And, <laughs> I just um, know that he was an active fighter in 1904, 1905, so it might have made a little more sense. But, you know, if we'd had a podcast 100 years ago, that would have been top of the list. Yeah, I don't know how we would have recorded it or how anyone would have listened to it, but, you know. But let's, then... let's not get bogged down in the details, Kieran. Fair enough. You're right. Okay. Hey, look, we've made it to the end of this uh, podcast. Yes. Um plenty for you all to pick over here um that will do it though for this week's episode remember uh, the spence ugas pay-per-view begins at 9 p.m eastern on saturday there are two episodes of spence ugas all access available for viewing online and on demand eric is on vacation next week um mm -hmm. so i will be back with a very special guest co-host to break down all the spence ugas card results and to look ahead to tyson fury against Dillian White. i'm very glad that you're here for this one and that we didn't have the guest host for 
this number of, of, of things that we had to go through this week. We yes. just got to basically look back on a pay-per-view next week. Which and is any guest host for this week would have demanded... Uh, I, they wouldn't have done it for free, <laughs> I don't think. Not. not a second time, that's for sure. No. <laughs> but they've done it once. And then, uh, so anyway, so yes, yeah, so uh, we will break down Spencer Ugas and look ahead to Tyson Fury against Dillian White next week. Until then, thank you for listening. Safe, be kind. Wait is over. The Shy returns with new episodes on Paramount Plus. What brings you to the Shy? Opportunity. Everybody get down! Walk right up to the side. A new rain is coming to the South Side. Never should have sent a boy to do a woman's job. The Shy. New episodes now streaming. Visit ParamountPlus.com/theshy to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with the Showtime annual plan. Offer ends July 14th. The subscription auto renews. Restrictions apply.